Thank you for listening to St. John's Teaching Church Podcast. Teaching Church is our in-depth Sunday adult Bible study held between church services each Sunday morning and taught by St. John's pastors and a variety of experienced Bible teachers. If today's message brings some encouragement or a resolve to follow Christ more fully, please be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast. And please consider leaving a five-star review. Both simple actions help to increase our reach and will encourage others to listen. We hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to grow in your faith walk and stay connected to God's Word. Now, open your heart to what God has for you today. Welcome to Teaching Church. Last week, you'll remember, we were uh, basking in the garden with a meaning-filled, purpose-filled life following in freedom the enabling command of God to take care of the garden and then to spend the afternoon on the riverbank with our soulmate Eve being fruitful and multiplying. And that's what God wanted for Adam and Eve. This week, we ruin everything. And we destroy everything uh, that God had really intended and created for humanity. So Genesis 3 describes this fall of humanity, and it starts out, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Speculating on speaking snakes is pointless and frankly disrespectful to the author of this account. It's also bad scholarship. The Hebrew word for snake is also used for enchantment or an enchanter. And so the writer is conveying a sinister power causing a sense of unhappiness and discontent within Eve. And that sinister power is Satan, the anti-God foe of humanity, who is humanity's accuser, and most importantly in this case, deceiver. He's the father of lies, he's the father of deception, and that's exactly what he will be doing here. And one of the first deceptions that he can to take is he can take on any form that he wants. He's a lot more powerful than we think. And so Paul even talks about Satan disguising himself as an agent, uh, as an angel of light. And he can even take over human beings because after Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ, Jesus says, I'm going to go suffer and die at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. Peter, in 
concerned friendship says, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus turns around and says, not get behind me, Peter, but get behind me, Satan, because your ways are not the ways of God. So it's no problem for Satan to use the more crafty or subtle serpent as an agent for his subterfuge. And he starts out with a soft sell approach and a disarmingly innocent question of information. Did God say, don't eat of any of the trees of the garden? But that question shifts Eve's perspective. It shifts it away from what God actually said, you may eat of all of the trees of the garden except one, to focusing only on the one. So this is an attack on God's character, his love, and his grace. What Satan is doing is he, he is instilling doubt in Eve's mind that God is not behaving as he should because he's being a little unreasonable here. And it worked. Satan gleefully notices he's able to instill that bitterness, the doubt concerning God's grace into Eve's mind. And so the woman replies to the serpent, we may eat of any of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it nor touch it under pain of death. Eve adds the not touch it. God said nothing about touching the tree. In other words, what Eve is doing now, thanks to Satan, is focusing upon the prohibition not the permission. She is focusing on what God said not to do, one tree, instead of what God said you can do, 99 trees. And so, that focuses upon a misconception of the character of God, and very interestingly, her words reflect her thoughts. You just did that 45 minutes ago, most of you, because you confessed to God that you had sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. That's the exact process here. So
so the fact that Eve adds to the prohibition, the fact that she says, nor touch it, reveals she's already fallen into sin. And she's fallen into sin because she now has a different picture and conception of God. God is no longer the loving and providing creator. Now, he's a taskmaster who makes unjust demands on his people because he really does not allow them to do what they want to do. Satan immediately capitalizes on that breach of confidence. He immediately focuses in on that. Remember, he's sinister and he's very, very smart. And so he, then he says, you know, since you're not trusting in this God, you really don't see him as your loving creator. The consequences that he talks about really are not true. And so he completely challenges and blatantly contradicts God's words. You will not die. God had said you were going to die. You're not, that's not going to happen. Indeed, you will be like God or as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, you need to assert yourself. Disobeying God is a good thing because it will give you self-realization, self-awareness, and self-importance. After all, the true God, when you really think about it, is a tyrant. And since he's a tyrant, he makes unreasonable demands on people. They really can't have what they really want. And he's just a kindly old man sitting in the heavens. He really won't follow through on the consequences. And when you really get down to it, He's pretty mean-spirited and petty. He doesn't like any rivals whatsoever. He doesn't like anyone else to be a god. So what Satan has done, the father of lies, is he has completely distorted and clouded the truth. And you see this in the actual words of the temptation, you will know good and evil. Eve, the facts are, Eve already knew the good. She already knew what the good life would be, namely, a living, loving relationship with her creator. 
the good life was life in the garden with Adam, where Adam is out pruning the trees, picking the fruit, etc. She's making Waldorf salad, uh, chef salad, etc. Because at this time they're vegans, and then they go down by the river and work on being fruitful and multiplying in terms of an intimate, loving relationship with her husband, Adam. That's pretty good. That's the good life. All that Satan is doing is adding the evil. So again, he's the deceiver, the father of lies. If he were honest, he would have said, knowing evil and good. But you see, the way he phrased it, it sounds as though Eve is going to get the additional knowledge of the good, because knowing good and evil, it comes first. But what Adam and Satan is really doing is saying, he should have said, knowing evil and good. So what Satan is doing is he is offering a better way, a faster way to self-realization and self-worth, the way of experience and, ex and expediency instead of the way of obedience. So it's a little offer here. Take the fast path. Take the easy path. Take the, the, the path that seems best to you, not the path of obedience to God. So this becomes a very tantalizing temptation. And Eve does not give in immediately. She contemplates it for a while, that it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for the knowledge it would give. And that was her mistake. She lingered a bit. She considered the possibilities. She thought about it a lot and molded over in her mind. Frankly, if she would have said, nope, I'm going to run and find Adam, and we're going to work on multiplying, we would all be much better off. But she thought about it. She lingered on it, and that was her first mistake. And so... After contemplating Satan's offer, she picks the apple and eats it and then picks another one and gives it to Adam. And Adam had no knowledge of this theological debate between Eve and Satan, 
So he eats the fruit simply because Eve gated him. So Adam was flagrantly disobedient because of his wife. And the author is attempting to convey the fact that, at least in my view, no one smokes their first marijuana cigarette alone. No one takes their first shot of heroin alone. Sin always thrives in company. It thrives in a group. In, in other words, there's always a kind of a sense of recruitment in terms of sinning. You want to get somebody else to join in and to participate with you in terms of that. And so that's why Eve then gives the fruit to Adam. Now, 50 years ago, hard to believe, uh, a psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, wrote a book entitled Whatever Became of Sin. Now, remember, I teach Cinderella theology. If the shoe fits, wear it. And Menninger predicted that the term sin, which, detect, which denotes a break of the relationship with God, would replace with words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, and the human condition would be excused as a product of biochemistry, environment, or trauma. Even crime would go unpunished, according to Menninger, because criminal activity would be justified and minimized as the result of some medical or mental disorder that was really no one's fault. Well, that's not true in Genesis 3. Because immediately after Adam and Eve sin, there are consequences. And they have a new knowledge to be sure, but it's knowledge of what they lost, not what they had gained. They were no longer God's special representatives. They were no longer God's people commissioned by him to have dominion over his creation. They had forfeited that honor. They had forfeited that privilege by disobeying God's simple command. And since they disobeyed the creator of life, all that is going to remain for them is death. And because of that, they experienced something they had never experienced before, namely a sense of shame. Shame has changed 
in our society and culture. It used to be shame was what a person felt because of what he or she did. I did something wrong and I'm ashamed of it. I feel rotten about it. I feel shame because of it. But now, with the shift, shame is something someone else does to you. And shame is not the result of our own actions, but is something imposed upon us by someone else, usually with an aura of superiority. And so we're hair shamed, we're fat shamed, we're body shamed, or whatever, and the focus of the shame is no longer on what we have done, but what the other person thinks about what we have done. And so we've lost a sense of sin, and we've lost a sense of shame. So the first consequence of shame is that Adam and Eve try to hide. Now they're afraid of God. They tie fig leaves together to cover up their shame and they try to hide behind some bushes. It didn't work. So then, in a beautiful, gentle tone, Moses, when he writes this, says, the Lord God took his afternoon stroll in the garden. But Adam and Eve don't run out to meet him. You would think they would run out and greet him. After all, he's their creator. He's given them everything that they have. He has set them up in a beautiful, intimate relationship with each other. You'd think they'd want him to, to be around him. But they don't. So God has to call out to Adam, where are you? God, of course, knew. But this whole point of the dialogue is profound. Adam's response immediately exposes and reveals his sin and his disobedience. He has a sense of shame. He has to hide from God. Those acts in and of themselves reveal he has sinned and separated himself from God. So now, everything is focused on God. Everything is up to him. What will he do about his creation and especially about the man and woman he made who have now disobeyed him? First, 
God wants to establish responsibility. Take responsibility for his actions. Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat? That's a simple yes or no answer. And Adam then tries to blame and, the and set the responsibility on someone other than himself, namely that woman who you gave me. So what Adam is actually saying is, God, if you had not created that beautiful blonde in the person of Eve, I never would have sinned. So he's blaming Eve, and in blaming Eve, he's actually blaming God, because God is the one who provided Eve to him. So God then turns to the culprit Eve and says, what about you? Well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she passes the buck and she passes the blame in terms of refusing to really acknowledge and own up to her own actions. Now, keep in mind, this is Old Testament stuff that's really antiquated and out of date. This type of activity never happens in our sophisticated society. Notice that God does not question the snake. He's well aware that the snake isn't at fault, the power behind the snake it is. And so Adam and Eve blame always something else in terms for their actions. And that really is part of the package when you're a god. Because when you're a god, you have to justify yourself. You have to prove that you are worthy to be a god. And to do that, you really can't do anything wrong, so you blame anything else. Then comes the big turn. God's response to humanity's sin and God's response is behavior has consequences. Again, this is, you know, completely biblical. But what God is doing here is he's saying sin has consequences and you'd better watch out if it's God himself who is the consequence administrator. And so in a precise and excruciating manner, God addresses all three persons 
involved in this act. And because he's God, the punishments perfectly fit the crime. The snake is cursed beyond all cattle. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So God is changing the image of the snake into a symbol of the one who happens to be using the snake as his tool. Remember this started out, the snake is the most subtle and crafty of all of the creatures. And now he crawls on his belly in a symbol of defeat and humiliation. So the snake and the power behind the snake will be humiliated and defeated. Humanity will attack the snake and the snake will retaliate. However, the offspring of Eve will eventually triumph over the power of the snake by crushing its head. This is the first glimmer of salvation and, wait a minute, here we go, here we go, it's just like this. Can you see this? Well, that's the point. <laughs> All that this little verse is, is the first little glimmer of light of the Messiah. But it's just a little glimmer. You can barely see it because all that he is talking about is someone, notice that it's he, personal pronoun, is going to crush the head of the snake. That's it. So it is just a little glimmer of the Messiah. Not much, but it's a little bit of light that's there. So that's going to take care of the of Satan in God's good time. Then to the woman he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will lord it over you. Here again, as a result of the, her sin, the woman will endure pain in her special and unique function. That's the attribute of God's justice. It perfectly fits the crime. And that's why the woman will have pain in childbearing because childbearing was the way Eve con would continue God's act of creation. That's how she participates, frankly, in God's action 
of creating man and woman. Well, there's also a little subtle thing here. The Hebrew is kind of saying your pain and your childbearing. So what this means is, is that it's not really just the pain of labor to deliver the child, it's kind of the ongoing pain of rearing a child and the disappointments that can come in junior high years, et cetera, et cetera, when you're rearing a child. And that can be very painful for parents. And that weighs on the mother's heart. But the real cause of pain is the now authority of the husband. Her husband will lord it over her, which means exercising a new type of authority. And this is the really tight circle. Before the fall, God's authority, which flowed to Adam and Eve via God's command, was to have dominion over God's creation and to take care of my garden. So God's authority and the way he exercises authority is primarily through inspiring, equipping, and enabling. He gives you everything you need and then simply says, do it. And remember, without a job description, use your creative abilities, use your perceptions, etc., to creatively and uniquely fulfill my will. And you heard that in the sermon. You know, in terms of when Pastor Von Blarken goes on about all of the different ways the people of St. John's are essentially offering a cup of water to one of the little children who believe in Jesus. That's the way God works. Equipping, enabling, inspiring. Now, after the fall into sin, authority becomes power, control, manipulation. Do what I want you to do or suffer the consequences. Uh, the problem lies in the fact that ever since the fall, which was a rebellion against God's authority, people don't know really how to use and exercise uplifting authority. And it's not just husbands and wives. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, same word, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And then comes the revolutionary words, it shall not be so 
among you. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, don't get involved with authority, get involved with servanthood. And that's radically different. And that really contradicts what is happening here. So the, the problem is, is that Satan, Eve had fallen for Satan's temptation to defy God's authority, and now all authority is fallen and misused because of that defiance. To Adam he said, because you have eaten of the tree, by the, the, the ground is now cursed because of you. Notice that Adam is not cursed. The ground is cursed because of him. And, and again, it's this super tight circle. Adam had been commanded, take care of the garden. Till the soil. Plant the plants. Uh, take a branch from the lime tree, put it with a branch from the lemon tree, make the seven-up tree that Rogers Gardens no longer carries. And so in other words, he was to work the soil to fulfill God's command. And now that soil is cursed because of him and it will yield pain, suffering, rocks, and in the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. The reason that Adam is not cursed is because God is aware someone is coming who will be cursed. And he's going to be cursed because he's going to be hanging on a cross and God will forsake him and say, have nothing to do with him. So that's the one who will be cursed by God. So, instead of having dominion over creation, in a garden where everything is to benefit humanity, the natural world and humanity are pitted against each other. And you remember Paul talks about this in Romans where he talks about creation groaning for the redemption of the world. And that's that Jewish idea that all of creation is frankly awaiting Judgment Day when it will be redeemed, so to speak, in terms of uh, the rising of the faithful. And in the end, the ground that has been cursed because of man will receive him. And he will once again become what the original creation was from the dust of the earth. So, a picky literist may say, you know, Satan kind of had a point. They didn't die that day. They didn't cease to exist. But look at what actually died. 
a living relationship with God, a loving relationship with God, and a living and loving relationship between Adam and Eve. So what died is frankly a person's purpose and meaning in life. Taking care of the garden becomes the sweat of your brow. And what died is this flesh of my flesh becomes that woman separated by enmity and strife. So there's a lot of deaths in terms of that act. Any questions so far? Yes. He's out pruning trees. He's taking care of the garden. So he was kind of just doing his job and taking care. Here's the problem. This is not a description of an event 6,000 years ago in the garden. This is an inerrant, scathing, personal, pointed description of exactly how we sin. This is, te is telling us this is the exact process that we go through when we sin in terms of doubting God's graciousness, twisting his word, thought, word, and deed. And this is an inerrant, scathing, personal description of the consequences of our sin. Well, you're, you're kind of anticipating a little me, because you see, in reality, we're in the same boat as Adam, because God told Adam, and he just walked in, so I can tell the guy in the green shirt to pay attention to this. Okay? God told Adam, take care of my garden. God tells you, take care of my church. And so we have exactly, there's a nice little parallel there in terms of taking care of God's church. But the point of Genesis 3 is, is that it describes us. And it describes how we sin, and it describes inerrantly the results of our sin, which means every Sunday we flee for refuge to this little light, to this, the gospel of Jesus, which 
is the only thing that'll really take care of that. So even though you do not see the little lights of God, we just have to trust that the lights are Yes. Yes. Even though at times it may seem dim, uh, that goes back to actually the, the most profound commentary on that comes from the walls of a, a prison in France during World War II that incarcerated the Jews and on the wall someone had carved, I believe in God even when he is silent. And that's what it talks about. Okay. Uh, so I warned you this is all bad news. But remember, you have, you know the way through this. So then let's close with the closing worship. Uh, and just the thing about that, we'll include uh, uh, the... Uh, conversion of St. Paul, which was frankly uh, last Thursday, or the 25th. O God, make speak to save us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, hear our prayer. Let us pray. Almighty Savior, who at noonday called your servant St. Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles, we pray you to illumine the world with the radiance of your glory so that all nations may come and worship you, for you live and reign forever. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people, and in our time grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe or follow this podcast so that you'll be notified of upcoming episodes. In addition to Teaching Church, this channel also hosts other podcasts, devotionals, and weekly audio of our Sunday sermons. If you'd like to partner with us by offering a gift to help us produce more of this content, or if you'd just like to learn more and stay connected, please visit stjohnsorange.org, and you can Venmo us at St. John's Orange. Thanks so much for listening, and God bless.